you know, just like physical illness, mental illness can be overcome. We just got to inspire people to believe that. The mental health community and the firearms industry have spent way too much time running parallel to each other without communicating. It's time we change the narrative and destroy the stigma that we both face. Walk the Talk America presents Guns and Mental Health, a podcast for firearms owners, clinicians, and the curious public. pronounce your name correctly it's not petrolino or any other it's petrolino it's petrolino right and you're uh jake wiscarson wiscarson yeah that's 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 german but i'm i'm actually more like you guys because i was raised by my italian side which is my mom's side so casanelli is is her name and uh her she's 100 percent italian so I, i feel a lot of kinship right now Michael Soldini, right? I said that correctly, Michael? Yes, Michael Soldini. I want to make it clear that Jersey's here. We got New Jersey <laughs> boys in the house. I don't get to talk that often to Jersey people uh, that are in the firearms industry, so this is amazing. Like, I, I spent uh, <laughs> my whole life there selling firearms, and we're, we're uh, people think we don't exist. Yeah, we are like baby pigeons. Like, we have to exist, but you just don't see them, right? <laughs> That's right. Every time I would tell people in the firearms industry that I was from New Jersey, they'd go, I'm sorry. <laughs> right. Actually, New Jersey does have a very good and healthy firearms community. And, and a lot of that community does become very engaged quickly because of the, the rules and regulations that we have to deal with. So, um you know, as you go and look at the different influencers and people that are in firearms from Jersey, we have a very strong community and people like Tony Simon, who do mm-hmm. the diversity shoot. I'm sure you're aware of Tony Simon and his yes, great sir. work that he does. And then uh, you have CNJFO, which is the Coalition of New Jersey Firearm Owners. And that's a grassroots organization. A lot of very good work and a lot of good people that that are uh, trying to keep it together in New Jersey and uh, really advocate for, for rights. Yeah. It's important because I always used to tell people all the time, like if we all leave and it's kind of ironic that I'm in Vegas, but (laughs) so if Tony Simons and you leave now, we'll have nobody. You can't just run away from a state. You gotta, gotta stay there and fight the good fight. Um, I had left 15 years ago, but that was for work. You know, I needed to be out West uh, for the Eagle imports. Um, but I, I believe that you do stay and fight and you do represent the community in a positive light, um, you know, and that's that's important. Oh, very much so. And so um, I think one of the, um, the guests on another show was talking. There's a lot of different analogies when we talk. And I know there's mental health and there's the rights. And it's funny how you guys know the the rights and the mental health intersect in a very big way because, um, you know, like the core principles of a lot of the groups that you work with and the people you discuss things with, and even your own credos is this isn't about legislation. It's about education very much. So like the DC project, right? They're into educating people versus trying to legislate away the problem. Like we have plenty of the resources that we need to work with. We just need to utilize them properly. And uh, here in Jersey, 
Um, when it comes to the rights end of things, they talk about, you know, a salami being sliced and slowly all the rights get taken away or a frog getting boiled in a pot. And I really like that analogy because for a firearm owner in New Jersey, um, that's like the frog is already being thrown into the boiling pot and they're like, holy cow, this is what's going on. Um, so, uh, and I think you appreciate the intersection there where, uh, mental health and the rights, you know, they shouldn't be conflicting, but as you know, they, they tend to, uh, with, what do we say? The, uh, the, the good intentions, right? Yeah. I think there's a lot of emotion that gets tossed around too, that interferes with the logical analysis of what needs to happen. So, um, you said something in our, our lead up to this before we started recording, uh, related to suicide numbers being carved out from all other gun death numbers so that we're appropriately addressing with the proper tool um, how to ameliorate whatever it is that we're we're ameliorating rather than using blunt instruments all the time in the you know under the guise of hope right we hope this works um, but <laughs> right. before we go down that that road uh, you should probably introduce yourself because we didn't we didn't do that you're you're an author you're, you're a columnist for ammo land uh, which is one of the major publications in the gun industry. And you just had a book published. You're a, a merchant seaman. Um, you've got a, a little boy <laughs> in your in your life. You've <laughs> I got do. your father. So tell us all about who you are and what the audience needs to know. Sure. So I'm John Petrolino and everything that you said. So I am a writer and an author. Uh, I, I, have, I write for Ammo Land primarily, but I've had work uh, show up in uh, The Truth About Guns. I've had work in Bearing Arms, um, a couple other online publications as well. My book, Decoding Firearms, it's uh, an easy to read guide on general gun safety and use that came out in June. It's a project that I was working on in 2019. So this just wasn't the brainchild of, ah, we've got all these new gun owners. This, this was something that was in the works and I guess kismet that it came out when it did in June. And that's kind of a a soup to nuts guide for people that are looking for training or interested in learning about firearms and getting started and it covers rifles and pistols and shotguns. I try to be as inclusive and comprehensive as possible in the text. Um, and, and originally it was supposed to be like a handout for a class that I wrote because I am an instructor. I'm a NRA certified instructor and a USCCA instructor. And uh, I was working on my own class and I, decided I wanted to have like a handout of information that I could give to my students. And by the time I put down all the material that I thought was important, it turned into 266 pages of text uh, with over 115 illustrations. So um, here we are now with a book <laughs> on firearms use. And um, that's kind of the quick and dirty on me. Uh, as you mentioned, I'm also a merchant seaman. I've been doing that for about 20 years now, if you include my college career. And um, yeah, that's kind of where I'm at. And my involvement with firearms goes all the way back to when I was a youth. My father and I used to go uh, hunting, which in New Jersey, and I, Michael, I'm sure you could agree with me, that's not necessarily something that has a very strong community in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. um, but it's it's an important uh, it's an important thing uh, for the uh, conservation efforts, hunting, and also teaching gun safety and an introduction into you know Second Amendment and rights. So I was involved in that, and then Boy Scouts and all kinds of other things that got me really involved into the firearms community. What uh, what was the motivation for getting into education? 
That's a great question. So I've always seemed to personally gravitate towards the education end of things in almost anything that I've been involved in. So if we rewind all the way back to when I was in Boy Scouts as a, a youth leader, I found myself in different roles. I was a uh, an instructor for shotgun and rifle and archery at a Boy Scout camp one summer. And uh, in my own troop, I also kind of worked as a liaison for some of the younger boys, uh, almost as a mentor and, and finding myself in these educational roles. Um, in college, I had an opportunity, um, cause it's a maritime school, uh, very hands-on oriented. They have, uh, the, um, the regiment and some of the positions that are there in the regiment, there was training rates. So I decided to go and become a training rate where I could teach, as a senior, teach the freshmen how to do simple things like pipe fitting and, you know, um, you know, how to, you know, work with PVC and, you know, uh, how systems work, engineering systems. So I've always gravitated to a more educational role um, in almost anything that I've done. I, I just like to help people, specifically with firearms. Um, when I was taking a class back in maybe 2013 or 2014, and I've had taken a few classes prior to this one class, I went with my brother-in-law. And at the end of the class, my brother-in-law was shooting in the dirt. And that's where the rounds were going into the dirt. And I'm like, you know, when you're done taking a class from a firearms trainer, you should be on paper and you should be proficient and you should be able to uh, hit your target. And I said, there's got to be a better way to teach this or convey this so that people can get on paper. And so that's what actually what spurred me to become an instructor is just taking a class that I felt not that it didn't fit what my needs were. My needs were fulfilled, but I had already taken classes prior to that. I was already somewhat of an experienced shooter, but my brother-in-law who was an absolute complete neophyte you know, he, he wasn't able to get on target. I said, there's, there's gotta be a better way. So that's what, you know, spurred me to become an educator in firearms. It, it fits, I guess, with your, with a lot of what I've read through your passion that you've communicated so far is that you're very, very selfless. And that seems to, to be the theme throughout your life. You're always trying to assist others. And, and I think that that fits well with the, the suicide prevention that you're talking about. So in your book, you, you mentioned, and I, confirmed that uh, you have right after the acknowledgements, there's a page on uh, suicide prevention where you include this, the national crisis line and you throw out a stat that approximately 85% of attempted firearm suicides are completed. And I think that's really important. So here you are, this instructor, this firearms advocate, second amendment advocate, author, writing pieces for Amoland. And you're also saying, Hey, there's a, there's a both and here. It's, it's not either or. And you're saying we, we as gun owners need to address this large elephant in the room, which is lots of us are dying by our own tools or our own, you know, hobby uh, instruments. So you're big hearted. You, you clearly <laughs> care. Um, but this is a, this is kind of an extra special step that uh, can, can incur a lot of blowback. Have you gotten, resistance or pushback from the broader gun community in trying to address the suicide and mental health stuff? I actually have not gotten any negative, um, any negative reception whatsoever about putting that in there. And, and I could, 
appreciate how we, we might be fearful that that could be a possibility. And the first person who actually addressed it head on was someone we were speaking about prior to the show, Cheryl Todd, when I was on her show, that was something she gravitated to right away was that I did include the suicide crisis hotline in, you know, in a page right there um, prior to the text of the book, right after the acknowledgements, I thought it was important enough to where I had put the, um, the number and the information also right in the table of contents. So, um, if you open up the table of contents, that phone number's in the table of contents. So even if you're just looking at the material, um, it's right there for you. And my decision to make that step was everything that you said, you know, um, 80 to 85% of suicide attempts with a firearm are successful versus the other, uh, other forms of suicide, about 20% of uh, other forms of suicide are successful. I think that's the statistic. And maybe you can help me out on that number. Um, and some of these numbers might be a little bit old. Um, and uh, also how we were discussing prior to the show, um, when we look at the numbers on firearm deaths, two thirds of all the deaths due to firearm are attributed to suicides. So when we're talking about gun violence and we're talking about the scourge and all the problems that firearms create in society, um, two thirds of those numbers. So when you just get that number from the CDC, two thirds of those numbers being suicides, I'm not saying need to be discounted, but they need to be looked at from a different lens. So if we're thinking about things in the terms of crime and violence, only one third is an actual criminal intent and or accident. That's the other thing with a firearm. So two thirds are people turning their firearms on themselves. And that number is very important, but it's not important when it comes to making legislation to stop quote unquote gun violence that the actual gun violence element is, is much smaller. And um, you know, that's what I like about, these kinds of conversations and groups like walk the talk America and doctors to responsible gun owners and the work that, you know, Cheryl Todd advocates for and all these other groups, the DC project where it's about education, not legislation. I feel that we already have many of the tools that we need. We just need to utilize them properly. And from a law standpoint, if we enforce the laws that we had properly, that would take care of a lot of issues on the criminal element. Now, the mental health side of things, the suicide and or criminal action because of mental illness, that's a whole different ball of wax. And, and they need to be compartmentalized. Yeah. So I, go ahead, Mike. Jake, I, <laughs> I have a question for you um, because I'm going to tell you a little story. Like the very when I first started the organization, um, and I was getting some interest from from other people in the industry, whether they be influencers or writers, um, a gentleman named John Crump. I'm sure you're familiar with John. Sure. Um, writes for Amelend. Good colleague. Yep. Yep. And writes for Amelend as well. Uh, reached out. Uh, really. I mean, I, I can't thank John enough for the work he's put into to represent Walk Talk America or get the word out. Um, but he releases this article. It goes on to Amelend. And I go in to see the comment section. And I literally felt <laughs> like Daniel LaRusso walking into Cobra Kai <laughs> to get some karate lessons. 
<laughs> and I end up saying, like, I, I said, John, man, these people in the the comments are, he said, I don't go in there. And he laughed, right? So it made me feel better. But I was like, I got to stop going in there because, you know, we talk about that pushback. And, and do you have that same theory? Like you stay away from the comment section? <laughs> because right. They always got my ass whipped when I went in there. And I'm like, we're on the same side. We're both always saying, you know, don't don't read the reviews is always something that people say, whatever type of content or anything. And it's funny because I had written an article a number of years ago, one of my earlier Ammo Land articles, and I had sent it to my sister and she read it. And she's like, wow, that's a really and she's not a gun person at all. Um, and she's like, oh, that's really interesting that, you know, I didn't know that about whatever the article content was the point, but the point was, she's like, but then I read all the comments. She's like, I couldn't believe the things that people were saying. And it's like, you have to really, if you're going to read them, just, you got to put on your big boy pants. If you're going to read the comments and that's the same thing with, uh, social media. So if you follow the posts, like an article that goes out through ammo land saying on social media, and then you have all the people trolling it and commenting like sometimes I address the comments, but you're better off not. You just if you're going to read them, just be prepared. And I don't think that that's a very good um, fillet of people's feelings and emotions towards certain things, because that's like Internet trolling, which is a whole different um, conversation, especially like social media. So even if they're engaging on Amoland's website in their forum it's not social media per se but it's a form of feedback loop um and people are hiding behind keyboards and oftentimes if you look at the the names that people use on ammo land you know they're not using their real names so they're hiding behind a keyboard so i i don't know the motivation there so i my advice to anyone in any type of content creation or anything if you read the comments, if you read the reviews, just, you know, take a deep breath in and know that, you know, what your real peers and colleagues might think about the material, you know, seek good peer reviews versus, you know, trolls on the Internet, I should say. That's, that's a great advice. <laughs> it, 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 it is. And, I, and I, so I have a I have a an undergrad in journalism, John. And, um, I wrote for some time at our, our local rag and I still consider myself a journalist to some, some extent. And I go back and forth on this, uh, idea of the comment section because newspapers of yesteryear didn't have a comment section. If you were motivated enough to take the time to sit down tap out of a letter and send it off to the editor of that rag, uh, great. Good for you. And it may or may not get published for the public to see if it was just pure vitriol, it was finding its way into the trash can. Um, and I don't know why we have comment sections. I really don't. I don't know why publishers feel the need to do that. I could speculate that it was because back in the beginnings of the interwebs, we wanted to foster a dialogue back when people were friendlier and it was more curiosity driven than, than, uh, than antagonistic. And now it's just not. And I don't, I would love to see some empirical research on this to, to see if somebody could somehow slap an algorithm on content uh, in the comments section based on certain words or phrases that were used and determine how many of them are positive versus negative. Cause right. I, I do read comments all the time. And I, and I like to think that I'm able to compartmentalize and set aside stuff and I can evaluate it neutrally overwhelmingly irrespective of the content, whether it's energy politics, 
weather, sports, guns, healthcare, it doesn't matter. Overwhelmingly, it's bitterness. And it, and, and whatever is get, gets commented does, does not contribute to the advancement of thought or society or information. It's, it's to attack. And it's, it's a lot of cherry picking attacks, which is even worse. And so I'm, I'm almost leaning more toward like, let's go back to what it was like yesteryear. And if we're going to publish something, just turn off the comments. Yeah. I see that a lot on certain articles and certain yeah. publications. They just don't have a comment section. I'm like, yeah, that's, yep. that's where you do it. No. And, and that's not a bad thing or at, at minimum, make people wear this on their sleeve. Like right. here's your picture and here's your name. And your state of residence. And if you want to, you know, sit there and leave, live by these comments uh, and you want to post them, you should have to atone for them. Um, and I think you were recently discussing the role of social media in general in society. And correct me if I'm speaking, misspeaking, but you currently have, uh, what is it, Instagram? You, you dumped Facebook, right? I don't have Facebook. I've actually been inactive on Instagram for the last four or five weeks, and I have moved uh, to Twitter, and I've been very judicious about what I see on Twitter. Um, I, I'm finding, I'm trying to find the value. Um, sure. Twitter to me is fascinating because you're limited to characters, and, and it incurs a lot of the same stuff. But sure. yeah, you're right. You're right. So to your point that you, not to radio something that you've already said elsewhere, but you look at when we look at our role as a whole in social media, is this giving me value? Is this valuable to me? And, or, and, or am I being valuable to others? Right. And if the answer to both of those questions is no, then why on earth are we wasting our, our time scrolling by posts? If it actually doesn't enrich your life. Um, you know, for me, I use social media for a communications tool that, turns out to be very important because if it wasn't for social media, there's a lot of context that I would not have created. Yep. And, um, you know, case in point, I think when I was discussing earlier on with Michael, I went and found him on Facebook and I zapped off a message and said, Hey, just wanted to talk to you about a couple things. Uh, and that's, this is the, this is the case for social media, right? Mm -hmm. And everything else that you've brought up, whether it's commentary on articles or posts and uh, things like that, that's the case against social media. And um, that's a whole nother thing, again, when it comes to mental health um, and how social media really affects people mentally and the number of, and maybe you can help me out with the statistics, the number of like, um, 16 year old girls with suicidal idolations or people that are actually fo going forward with suicide has gone up dramatically in numbers. And this is in a, in a post social media world where everything is being published nonstop and people are feeling like they have to compete with each other. When in reality, these little posts, these pictures, these stories, they're just small fantasies and they're fairy tales, which we can make them seem as great as we want them to. Um, and I'm sure you could comment to that, you know, clinically and what that means. Uh, regardless, I think there is a problem, but there's, there's a very good use here for social media. I just think it's underutilized. I think you're talking about um, 
a, a few different things there, all of which are worth merit. The first that you alluded to is uh, the work of Jonathan Haidt, H-A-I-D-T. Uh, if you want to look him up, he, he wrote a book called The Coddling of the American Mind. And he also discusses, he's been on several podcasts of fairly prominent people, Joe Rogan, for example. Sure. Um, Zubin Demania references him frequently. But um, what Haidt talks about was the, the astronomical surge of uh, teen suicidal ideation and um, teen anxiety and depressive disorders based on the emergence of social media. And we can correlate this to about children born in 1996 or afterward, because they were the first generation to have social media in middle school, which is when right. you do your most development. And so there's, there's definitely an adverse effect there that's correlative to the emergence of social media. And all those things that you said are, are accurate. The comparisons nonstop to uh, what everybody else's best moments are and then thinking that your life sucks if you don't have those moments and the inability to take those in stride. Right. But here's something that, that popped into my head recently, literally like two, two days ago or some three days ago, I was texting my brother who lives in Oregon. So we're, we're not in town anymore. And we're talking about this GameStop uh, thing with the, with the, the, the Redditors uh, taking down sure. hedge funds. And I sent him something that had been posted I don't know, 47 minutes earlier on Twitter. And I just happened upon, it. I was like, Oh, he'll, he'll be interested in this. He writes back old news. And, I, and right. he's like, you gave me, you gave me crap when, when I sent you something that was a couple days old, now I'm going to do the <laughs> same thing to you. And, and I had this epiphany right there in that moment. I was like, Holy crap. I, I did become like, I got sucked into the culture. Right. And, and, and it's, it, that's a comparison culture not necessarily of keeping up with the Joneses, but to compete for information. Cause something you said there triggered that in my head. It was like the constant bombardment of information production. It doesn't even go to sleep when we go to sleep because the, the internet is worldwide. And what's fascinating about that is that you can't ever keep up. There used to be a time when you'd wake up in the morning, open up the paper or turn on the TV, catch the morning news, catch the evening news, what happened during the day. And that was it. You bookended it. And now it's nonstop. And that's how that creates a stimulus in our brain. That's nonstop. And we're not designed for that. And that gets into the third point that I, I think to which you alluded, which is that we have to have good boundaries around this stuff. If we're going to stay mentally well, we have to know where our limits are. And, and I don't just mean um, screen time calculators on the mobile device. That's a great idea, but you're still handing your power over to something else to do it right. for you, right? So um, it's great that you have tracking devices on your apps to make sure that you're only staying on for an hour a day or whatever. Um, but where's the self-preservation? And so to that, I would say, as we're, as we're paying attention to this ongoing news cycle, as we're paying attention to all the information, um, we want to be mindful that we're not being sucked into the addictive properties of social media. And that's something that uh, Hyde talks about. Um, the, the, uh, the Center for Humane Tech guys talk about this a lot. Um, they, if you don't know about that, go to humanetech.org. They're sure. the ones who produce the, the social dilemma. But it's the idea of a tool is something that sits on the shelf. And then when we need it, we go pick it up and use it. But social media is no longer a tool because it blinks at us and it's and it's peppering our brains with dopamine hits saying, you need this, you need to keep up, you need to check the news, you need to check your timeline, you need to look at your likes, you need to compare. And so it we no longer have control over it, it has control over us. 
so while there's good and bad to, to everything in life, um, can I use a screwdriver for maladaptive purposes? Yes, I can, but it's still a screwdriver. Um, we're the ones who determine how we use the screwdriver. Similarly, we have to be the ones to determine how we use the social media. If you're using it for connection and contact and connectivity and all that, that's great. If you're using it just to like grind your teeth and, and, you know, squeeze your knuckles in, in anger because the world is falling apart. Right. Well, that's, that's probably problematic. And it's probably negatively influencing, not just you and your ability to get some sleep at night, but also your human interactions with other people in your world. I mean, t- technology has forced human beings to evolve one way or another. And if you turn back the clock and, and you might be able to correct me on this, um, but I do believe going way back uh, prior to electricity and artificial light, the human sleep cycle was much different than it is now. So yeah. we used to go to bed and we, we'd go to sleep for a few hours. Then we would wake up and have that actual midnight snack, if you will, maybe do something in the middle of the evening that was productive. And then we went back to bed and that was kind of our sleep cycles prior to artificial light. And that's no different than how we're evolving now And if people are doing screen time and looking at social media posts and whatnot prior to going to bed, which is a time where now you're going to take that and you're going to push that into, um, you know, your subconscious, if you will, when you go into your REM sleep, when you're supposed to have everything turned off. Um, and And I think when you talk about studying something simple like practicing a skill, you retain more if you practice that skill let's say an hour before bed versus an hour after waking up, the retention level goes up because your body shuts down and it almost fortifies exactly what you were doing. So like if you go to bed thinking bad thoughts, chances have it, you're going to wake up thinking bad thoughts. Sure. And it's, a, it's a vicious cycle. So all of these things I think play into our mental health in a very big way. And maybe that doesn't have anything to do with firearms, but it does when you have more instances, again, of suicidal idolation. And if people are electing to use firearms uh, on themselves or in a criminal element because of their instability are now using those firearms on others, this is a big problem. Yeah, I would love to get into some of the controversial stuff here because this is what we do. We have to we have to get our hands dirty if we're going to solve this problem. So um, think back to the, the blunt instrument, right? So one of those blunt instruments is a red flag law, um, poorly conceived, hastily constructed without consultation with law enforcement or mental health professionals to see what the potential uh, after effects or unintended consequences could be. All right. So now they're on the books. And if you want to repeal a red flag law, you're going to be branded a, you know, a, an advocate for suicide. <laughs> it's like, sure. no, we're not. Um, so one of the ways we can, we can change this is we can amend the law. Right. But recently I've been hearing some, some pushback in certain circles from certain people saying, yes, but we need them there because uh, fill in the blank. And it always has to do with a presumption of wrongdoing prior to committing the wrongdoing. That's essentially what a red flag law does. It says, I think based on your behaviors that you're going to do X and X is bad. So therefore we're going to restrict access to this, this one tool called a firearm to prevent you from doing bad X. It's a nice feel good law. And it feels like we're doing something, but we don't have any practical evidence that suggests that, that it does. But you wrote in a recent column that people have uh, broadly across the country started um, 
what would you refer to it as hijacking or, or um, leveraging or um, uh, take taking suicide and um, using it as a, a exploitation, right? To, sure. to put, to push re- rights restriction. Now let's presume for a second that the people have, who are doing this have great uh, will, right? They have great, great desire and it's pure of heart. They just want to want to keep people from dying. Well, that's different than keeping people from dying by suicide of firearm, right? right? So, so I'm not big into symptom treatment. I'm big into problem resolution. If the problem has right. gotten somebody to the point where they want to take their life, removing firearms is, is one way of preventing that in that particular fashion. But as you, you referenced in your article, um, suicide rates go up even if firearm suicide rates go down, talk a little bit about that and, and see if we can brainstorm some reasonable interventions that don't have to do with minority right. report <laughs> tactics. Um, yeah. And that's funny. Cause I just referenced minority report to somebody the other night in a conversation. Um, Cam Edwards talks about this quite a bit. He's got a ton of articles on it. And I think the article that you're referencing, the one that I did on Amelan, I have links to some of uh, Cam Edwards work and I have, um, you know, links to Robert Young's work uh, talking about the situation and something that Cam Edwards found in his studies and he's, um, you know, constantly brings up and it's very valid is so take, for example, a state like Connecticut that's had so-called red flag laws for quite a while to where you can actually look at some data. And what they found was, OK, the instances of firearm suicides have gone down in these states with uh, red flag laws. I think that's great, bravo, drop, mic drop, right? Well, not so fast, not when the overall suicide rate has gone up. So the overall suicide rate has gone up. So all of you done is like, what does a red flag law do is it removes the firearm and then it's like, we're gonna sit here and say that this person has some sort of a, a mental defect, however you wanna define that, or they're having some sort of a mental crisis or fill in the blank. We're going to take away their guns and there is zero recourse for helping these people. Like there's nothing in the law that says, hey, let's get these guys help. You know, so prior to red flag laws, if you had a problem with somebody that you thought, and I I don't like to use this word, but I'll use it is say, okay, that person's crazy. Right. And they have a gun Mm -hmm. and they're going to do something violent. And that could be whoever, your neighbor, your spouse, your lover. It doesn't matter who. You pick up the phone, you call 911, the police respond, and usually there's going to be an arrest of some sorts. And what happens anyhow? The firearms are going to get seized, but there's due process involved. And then you let the judicial system sort it out. And what we also have, I think, and you can correct me on this, I think every single state in the union does have involuntary commitment laws. And I'm not sitting here saying I'm an advocate of involuntary commitment. But what I am saying is this is a tool that is available. And why aren't we looking at that as a possibility versus saying, okay, let's take away this guy's guns and then leave him with a bucket of bleach and a bucket of ammonia. And he could do some grand damage right there with a plastic bag um, if they wish to. Or, you know, there was an instance, a suicide, a, um, a successful suicide attempt that I knew of that somebody lit a charcoal barbecue in, in a bathroom and closed the door and suffocated themselves, you know, you know, and, and that was a successful suicide attempt. So you remove these firearms, you're only minutes away from being able to, to finish 
the job, um, all you have to do is go to a busy interstate and, and fling yourself from an overpass. Um, so taking away the firearm is a very, very small element here. And if these red flag laws addressed things more from a, like you said, non-minority report perspective, and there was both, um, you know, um, giving somebody th their day in court and they also, hey, this guy needs help. Let's actually get them help. I think that's what's important here. We had uh, um, Laura and Ed on from uh, Liberal Gun Club uh, We just a podcast ago. And um, Laura made the point that they're, they're more interested in having conversations about the systemic issues that brought the person to that crisis which is a far harder conversation than slapping a law that on appearance looks good, but it's almost like, like you mentioned there uh, with the, with regard to the Connecticut stuff, how many years has it been now that we've been gathering data six or eight, I think. And okay, now we have our data and it's, it's insufficient. What do you do now? It's almost like running the, the article that has a, a misprint. Nobody right. reads the retraction, you know, who's going right. back in time and, and sifting through this stuff to say, whoops, we made a mistake. Certainly not the politicians who took credit for ostensibly saving all the lives when they passed it and celebrated and high-fived and self-congratulated. Um, I don't know how we have that conversation without talking about either massive, you know, resources dedicated from the state level or the public commitment level to, to treatment programs, uh, which is probably going to require tax increases, which is unappealing. Right. Um, but, you know, we, we, where do we go with this? Pro how do we solve this problem um, other than through dialogue? Like, you know, saying, right. hey, let's let's take care of each other. Let's take care of ourselves. Not everybody has to rise to the level of professional psychotherapy or be committed to a hospital whose beds are already full. <laughs> you know, right. um, jails are not <laughs> appropriate places to put people who haven't committed crimes. So I, I, don't, I don't know. I, don't, I mean, I could think of some answers, but they take patience and time. And apparently nobody's interested in that. Well, the liberal gun club that you bring them up, something that really attracted me to them. And if you go and dig into their about us page, um, they're very much so about addressing root causes to problems. Yeah. So yeah. you look at things from a root cause analysis, and this is something that I do in my profession as well. Root cause analysis, like why is this actually going on? And to your point, like you said, I am not about, treating the symptom like so you could treat the symptom okay you have a fever take a tylenol or acetaminophen or whatever and that's going to treat the symptom but well why does this person have a fever well they have a fever because they've got complete body sepsis uh, that's not helping right. the problem right and i'm just using that as one example Fantastic of a million one, examples that you can come up with so i want to treat this symptom and okay that's great they might feel better for a little bit but Ultimately speaking, that person's probably going to perish if you don't treat their sepsis appropriately with, say, uh, antibiotics or whatever kind of therapeutics that you need to treat that sort of thing. Yeah, it's um, we bring this up often in our agency because we're all family systems oriented. And uh, I, I analogize it to playing therapeutic whack-a-mole. You treat the anxiety, depression pops up. Treat the depression, a drinking disorder pops up. Treat the drinking, and uh, you know, they start smoking like a chimney. You know, it's like, I, well, 
what, I was what's just giving say rise that. to this? Yeah. It's like, well, you, you look at people that are in like Alcoholics Anonymous and you see the ashtrays that are overflowed with like, let's not get rid of everything. Like, yeah. you know what? You know, and when do you draw the line on crutches? Like, which problem is the most, you know, detrimental to your life? You now it's like somebody used to equate like a drinking problem is when your drinking causes problems. And it's a very simple way to define a drinking problem, right? Because it doesn't necessarily have to even be alcoholism for it to be a drinking problem. You might just go out and be the party guide, but you start fighting. That's a drinking problem, you know? Um, (laughs) So um, maybe the removal of the alcohol for that individual, if they're going to take up smoking, you can address the smoking over a few years, you know, versus the alcohol, which has a more acute problem, right? It's a more acute uh, issue. And maybe maybe the the hang up is uh, just this desire to be quote unquote evidence driven, right? Evidence based. So we when when we're collecting data from something, we observe it for a period of time. We collect our data, and if it achieved the goal, we say hooray, uh, and we pretend that nothing else needs treating. And I think that's coupled part and parcel with uh, with an instant gratification society and a and you know wanting everything right now delivered on time, perfectly crafted to us. And I think we've forgotten that the, the long-term steady continued effort in one direction pays much longer dividends. Um, but for some reason we've lost that ability to be patient and, you know, wait, I guess. And so maybe that's the antidote is we just tell everybody, Hey, small steps, baby steps. We're not there yet. We're not there yet. You know, instead of taking these, these, you know, clickbait flash, talking points that say, ah, look what I did today that will affect something tomorrow, but not, you know, be, will be irrelevant two years from now. Mike, you were going to well, jump in. I'm oh, sorry. No, I was just going to say, you know, we're talking about red flag laws. Um, I, I, I think they're here to stay. I, I, I hate to say it. I don't I think, think that's a reality. Do. I think you're right. Yeah. Um, you know, I personally, I think, I think the firearms industry waited too long to, be proactive in things that they could have done similar to, you know, the alcohol industry with DUIs, but that's okay. We can still do those things and defend our second amendment rights. Right. And we can be socially conscious and we can defend our second amendment rights. Uh, I guess my question is um, with what do you, when John, when you look at WTTA and you look at us, right. Do you think that, we have an opportunity to maybe make some of these red flag laws. They're never going to make complete sense, right? But we can maybe shape them or, you know, find the holes in these things. Do you believe that in that theory? Because some people in the firearms industry just believe it's not even worth talking to those people. No, it's it's incredibly important. And I think you're the perfect, uh, the perfect type of organization, or if not the perfect organization, or even working with doctors and responsible gun owners, similar type of attitudes. Right. And I, um, you know, I'll tell you, I, there's, there's a New Jersey legislator that I do communicate with. He's a state legislator. Um, I'm not going to say who he is or whatever. I don't want to dox him, but we've had several conversations about the firearms issue. He's right to, to center um, that, on his voting records. And he and I have discussed a lot of different things relating to firearms And in one of our conversations that we had, he said, you know, something that kind of bothered me, and maybe you could help me out, is how he voted on a a red flag law. And he said, I got all of this hate 
and ugly commentary from gun owners. He says, look, I've been good to you on all of these other things. Like, why are you pushing back on me about this? He's like, we don't want domestic abusers to have firearms. We don't want so-called crazy people to have firearms. So like, what's wrong with this law? What's wrong with this bill? And I kind of just took a sigh. And here's the thing. There was no arena for people to be educated because you have certain groups maybe that wear red shirts or are funded from millionaires that have the public stage when it comes to so-called firearm violence that they get all of the attention um, and they, we need to make room at the table for groups like Walk the Talk America and, um, and the like to be able to explain to the legislators like you're being sold something that I don't think you know what you're buying. OK, so you're buying into something and I don't think you really understand the full ramifications. And when I explain the red flag law and how it operates in particular in New Jersey and how it's already been weaponized more than once. Um, in, in, in a national news level in New Jersey, red flag laws have already been weaponized. Um, I got done explaining to him the, the, the due process issues and I got done explaining to him all of these other things. And he kind of said, oh, like he didn't know. I'm like, you are basically sold snake oil. That's what you were sold. Because if you want to take firearms from domestic abuser hands, we already have that from the Lautenberg Act. That's already something that is law. So uh, and that also started in New Jersey, mind you. And that's a federal thing. If you are a known domestic abuser, you are not lawfully allowed to have firearms. OK, number one. Number two, if there was some sort of an issue with somebody, um, whether it's domestic or or not, and you have a um, short term restraining order, a temporary restraining order imposed on that person, you are not allowed to have firearms, at least in the state of New Jersey. If you have had a permanent restraining order, you cannot get firearms. So like there's all of these things that already exist that we don't use. And they're trying to package this stuff up into red flag law. Like it's very like, here's the, the, the one stop shop on all of these things. Well, uh, aside from the fact that there is no due process, which is an issue, number one. Number two, we don't actually address the mental health elements of the problem. And then number three, this is something that is, can, and will be weaponized. I totally agree. Yeah. Totally agree. Yep. And I'll add to that, and I don't, I haven't read yours closely enough. I just know that New Jersey's is the only one, this was a year and a half ago or whenever I researched this, was the only law that said um, any person may apply for a, uh, an extreme risk protection order. All the other states limit it to law enforcement or uh, household members, family family members. And so the way they do that is through law enforcement. So like if you wanted a petition against me, you do that through right. law enforcement and what law enforcement agency is going to say no, right? Because right? Right. they don't want the liability. Totally. Right. It could be a coworker. And that's the, that's the crazy part about Jersey is a coworker could enact that on you. I mean, I, I had employees that hated each other. They absolutely <laughs> I had to keep them separate. You know, right. they, yeah. So that, that ends up uh, turning into, well, my clinician's going to turn me in, you know, and, and, and they, and the broader public doesn't understand that we have ethical and legal protections in place against breaching confidentiality for any reason, except the most extreme. And, 
long before we would ever effectuate an application for an extreme risk protection order, we would just send you to the hospital against your will, which is still something we are very loath to do as clinicians. We almost never do that. Um, teachers might do it. Police officers might do it. Your employer might do it. But but clinicians, professionals who are specifically trained to de-escalate people uh, and help them through their, their times of great need, we'll never do that. But what it does is it still serves as a barrier to care because they think we're going to take their ability to defend themselves away from them. And anyway, all that is to say this, that in Nevada, our law, as much as I understand it to be a copycat of every other law, the the path to rights restriction is very, very low. The, the, bearer, the burden of proof is very low. It starts with um, reasonable suspicion from the family member can, can be enough to put in an application. And for law enforcement, they have to have probable cause and, and then the judge determines whether or not the preponderance of evidence on that piece of paper is enough. And the accused doesn't even have to be present to argue against that. It can be issued in an ex parte fashion. But here's the crazy thing. So to get your rights back, we have to establish clear and convincing evidence to the opposite that you are safe, that you're no longer a threat, that you're no longer a danger. And we don't know what clear and convincing is. Uh, Nobody does because it's not defined in law. So we right. have this very low threshold for rights restriction, a very high threshold for rights restoration. And um, that's a problem because most police that I know around here for the year that it's been in effect so far are extremely hesitant to, to effectuate that because they don't want to end up getting sued for a due process violation or a Fourth Amendment violation or, or any number of things. Right. Very, very challenging. And it's and it but, and it frightens people away to, from care, and that takes away your innocent into proven guilty. It plays into everything that you said about the minority report and the division of pre crime and all of these things. People don't really think about them. Um, is it a division or a is, ministry? I think it's a ministry. Uh, maybe, maybe it's a ministry <laughs> of uh, pre crime. Uh, it's it's been a while. <laughs> yeah, I'm but that you're, up. you're you're hitting the nail on the head and. Um, and it is scary. It's slightly Orwellian, in my opinion. You shouldn't be able to take away a right on preponderance of evidence to only have it returned with beyond the shadow of a doubt. That's not how this works. It's supposed to be, you know, you, 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 you convict beyond the shadow of a doubt. And if there is preponderance of evidence, it's not admissible, you know? Right. That's how that works. I mean, via law, <laughs> you, you know? So I guess the good news is that, that we we know the, the flaws. So if we're not going to be able to pull the laws off the books, like Mike alluded, um, we can at least amend them and we can make the language uh, harmonious. That's a good start. At least everybody's on the same page then. And then, you know, we bring in law enforcement to consult and say, all right, so you're being compelled to do this thing by law. How are you going to do it? Because they don't, they also don't know how. They don't have storage lockers. They They, they really struggle with, fourth amendment stuff with regard to taking somebody's property when they haven't committed a crime it's right. they're, they're like i don't i don't really know what and, i can do here i know i'm empowered it. yeah so that then we step in and we say all right hey we recognize you're in crisis we're not going to compel you to hand those those pieces of property over to us what we'll do is we'll really strongly ask you to voluntarily su submit them to somebody else. But then we have transfer laws that stand in the way. <laughs> of course. <laughs> so like New Jersey, you can't do that. Uh, one of the things that I just recently, you know, repeated the story from, I, I think it was, it was it you Jake or Mike? I can't remember 
talking about the inception of Walk the Talk America, and you have the tale of two different suicidal persons, and one was a veteran, and one can. So, to to your right. point, if you can just go yep. over that, because I think it's a very powerful story that I think needs to be repeated somewhat regularly. Um, and if you could go and run with that, because it sums up something that's, I think that's an elephant in the room also, because this is not a one size fits all solution. Yeah, that was, uh, that was actually in the very beginning. And it's so funny because we've come such a, you know, so far since then, um, even in our programs and, and what we believe in, uh, but that way I had somebody reached out through a friend and heard about the organization and, and she invited me to a lunch. And I went, I had no idea what we were doing at that lunch. I just started, sat down and started talking about what Walk the Talk was back then. And uh, she was pretty stoic. And she had said, uh, I'm, I'm going to tell you a story. And I want you to know that if I had a firearm, I wouldn't be here today to tell this. And at first, my reaction was, oh, boy, here we go. <laughs> like, I'm going to get a lesson on how firearms are bad. But it wasn't that. She was actually saying that she went through a time in her life where she had something going on. She was in a crisis and, and basically saying that if I had easy access to firearm, I would have done it for sure. Um, but, you know, thankfully she's still with us today, right. To tell the story. And she, if it wasn't for a doctor, that was, a, she had a new doctor that was just watching her and listening to her. And that doctor was able to get her the help that she needed. She, she didn't want to come forward because she was afraid of the stigma of what would she go through at her job and everything like that. Um, and it was really interesting. This huge supporter of Walk Talk America, you know, it turns out you're not even a gun person, right? That same night, I'm on the, the phone with uh, a very influential, um, you know, firearms, I, I would say like influencer and writer. And he goes, I'm going to tell you something I've never told anybody before. Cause I was telling him the idea about WTT because in the beginning, I just would tell anybody, I wanted everybody to get behind sure. it. Um, and he, he started off and this is a, this is a, it gave me chills because he goes, I'm going to tell you a story right now. When I came back from Afghanistan, if I didn't have my firearm, I wouldn't be here today. And I was like, Oh my God, like that's the, <laughs> right. And he, he was like, and he said something that was super interesting to me. Um, Cause he was like, yeah, I had PTSD so bad. I would go to the range. I would shoot. Um, I, he was like, I was sleeping with my gun. Like, it, like it was almost like the gun was like a, 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 his wife, right? Like he was literally like, he was it, focusing all that energy in there and it just helped him. Um, and when I asked him, I said, why, why didn't you do it? you had the firearm right there. Like, why didn't you do it? And he goes, uh, one of the reasons why I didn't do it is because I love the community, the firearms industry. And I, I just don't want to give anybody any reason, any more ammo against us. Sure. I thought that was very interesting. Wow. Like he, he, he had thought about that. You know, I didn't want to do that and make the industry look bad. Um, but that was to say, you know, they both had the same experience, but come from two completely different worlds. But the message of WTTA still resonated with both of them. Like that, oh. that was super unique. And, <laughs> and it shows it shows there is no one size fits all solution to this. And back to Jake's point of, you know, you've got to you've got to treat the patient as a whole, the whole patient. You don't just treat the, the small one little tiny um, symptom, you know, and, 
everybody's different. So why wouldn't we, well, how could we have a solution that's right for everybody if we're all different? Let me ask you guys this, and this may be something we cut from the podcast, (laughs) (laughs) Um, but do we need to change our, our mission of preventing suicide by firearm and just say preventing suicide? Because it seems like if we're trying to prevent suicide by firearm, red flag laws do that. Boom, done. See the evidence. Um, I think, well, I mean, that's something, it's funny that you, you brought that up because um, it's in my article, <laughs> the, the one that you were reading, I talk about the different things and, and I'm going to kind of loop back to your question specifically here. We look at these rates of suicide. So I, I found um, numbers from these Giffords fact sheets that they have, and they're talking about firearm deaths. And that's, that's all those statistics that you got to read. And you have Illinois with a rate of 40% of the deaths uh, due to firearms is suicide. In Maryland is 40% is suicide. New Jersey is 40%, which is relatively low, okay? And then if you were to look at the numbers in comparison to, say, a state like New Hampshire, where 90% of the deaths due to uh, firearms is suicide, Well, here's the thing. Let's look at the situation. You have high crime and you have high violence in states like New Jersey, Maryland and Illinois. So naturally, your suicide numbers are going to be pushed down. But what does that tell me? It tells me in a state that has very little restrictions like New Hampshire, where you have constitutional carry, you could buy these firearms and you could get them readily. A New Hampshire resident is more likely to use a firearm on themselves nine out of 10 times than they are against someone else or a firearm accidentally causing a death. So when you look at these numbers in regards to the suicides versus crime and things like that, the real question that I ask, and it's towards the end of the, you know, the article, and it's, it's tongue in cheek, but it's not tongue in cheek. The question we need to ask is, why do so many people want to take their lives? And so to your point, the suicide issue definitely needs to be addressed. To me, it doesn't matter if it's with the firearm or flinging yourself from a bridge. Why do we have so many people that want to end their lives? What did we have going on? Is it a quality of life issue? Is it what is happening in the world? And it's not just the United States, um, because there was numbers here that were um, David Kodri had brought up in one of his articles that I I quote in here about Japan and the number of people that died from suicide in in Japan this one, whatever month they were talking about in 2020, was more than the people that died from COVID. So the COVID restrictions caused more suicides than COVID. Yeah. So why why do we have people that want to kill themselves? And I think that's the important question. I think uh, from a firearms industry perspective and also a mental health perspective, that's where the spotlight should be. Like, why do people want to kill themselves? I don't think it's a matter of how they do it, firearm or, you know, otherwise. Yes, I think the, the dialogue should be that way. And if you take the spotlight off of that, then we can get to real work. Because when you're looking at that systemically, like as an actual crisis, instead of just treating the symptom or removing the one tool you could get people help or at least open the dialogue to getting people help. Yeah, John, I think that bias. Yeah. I think the, 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 one of the major issues, especially when it comes to firearms owners or firearms industry professionals, right. Is 
I feel, and I've been in this game for a long time. So everybody at home that's listening and is like, you know, you just burst on the scene two years ago. No, I, I, my family's been in the firearms industry. I was with Eagle for 20 years. Um, you know, this is what I do to, to make a living. Uh, but people need to understand that we might not ever have that answer. Like, I, I'm not sure with my interactions with mental health professionals, some of them are like highly regarded, that they have that answer too, right? Like, why do people do this? My thing is, I feel that because we've tried to always pass the ball, because what, I'm a guy at Ruger, I'm not supposed to know. <laughs> if, if, the, if the professionals haven't figured it out, how is the gun industry going to figure it out? The gun okay. industry doesn't know. We just say it's a mental health issue and we got to figure this stuff out. But that's, that's why my focus and it became laser focus was, okay, let's make sure that we're not sending people to get in trouble, right? Let's get the proper information out there and let's get the, the mental health professionals that are actually on our side. I mean, Jake and I are now, we're finding more and more mental health clinicians coming forward and saying, hey, I'm a gun person. Like, I, I don't have a problem, right? And that's, that's what we need to do, vet them, and then connect people with the help so there's no fear. Right. Um, and then the other stuff becomes more of a government issue, right? A funding for mental health and getting people the help they need when they can't afford it. I mean, that's, that's not our lane, but I feel like the Rugers and the, the, the arms corps and, and, you know, we can do more. We can, we can put those warnings out there where you can say, Hey, call this number. Text oh, yeah. this line. Um, Cause there's this perception that we just don't care. Um, and I don't think people ever want to help people that act like they don't care. Right. And, and I know it's not true. It's one of the reasons why I fell in love with the firearms. I'm not a firearms guy. Grew up in Jersey. Yeah. I grew up in yeah, part of my life. I was in California, San Francisco. I didn't go hunting. I didn't have, I was into the gun culture. I, there was a lot of things I didn't understand in the very beginning when I first started working with firearms. Like I was one of those guys in the very beginning. I was like, well, yeah, shouldn't we have a background check for everybody? <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> not understanding what that meant when I was a 20 year old kid. Um, but it's, it's one of those things where I look at it now and it's like, no, let's do something. Let's, let's get out there ahead of it. Let's try to get upstream to prevent the unpredictable. Um, you know, they, the stories become anecdotal. And I always have this argument with all these, these people that are just, we need the data. We need the data. We need the data. It's like, don't let data get in the way of saving a life if potentially they're not going to tell you about it. Right. I, I, I feel very blessed when someone reaches out to me through email and I know this is a private thing. So I don't post these things on social media that they say, I want to thank you. I went to, you know, this website and I found somebody I needed help. It made me feel good that there was a gun industry guy or a gun industry group that was coming forward saying it's okay. They needed that. Right. Um, I, I don't know the data. Right. I don't say like if this card helped you find somebody and it saved your life, we need to know about this now. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Just hit the QR code or whatever. <laughs> let it, let us know. Drop a dime. Let us know. You saved my life. And I think that's like what you guys have with the, you know, aligning yourselves with firearm uh, manufacturers and getting the information and the literature out there. And it, very similar to me, you know, putting the information for the suicide hotline in the book, like we do have a, a part to play, you, you, you know, because we, we are in the, we are in this together. So working together makes sense. Do you, you, you have been doing this for a while. Do you think that w any manufacturer of any parts 
ammo firearms would ever say no to putting flyers in boxes or stickers on boxes or products or anything like can you envision a situation where somebody goes no nah, that's not really our thing because of wh- whatever reason i mean well yeah yes i mean i i could see that being somebody's um you know perspective because of the optics you, you know because it's like if you put that seed there you know, it's almost like, oh, we're addressing it, but we're not addressing it. I, I, uh, I think it would be silly to have that attitude, but I can I can see that attitude being something that is there. Because um, if you look at, you know, it, uh, unfortunately, it took things like legislation for gun locks to be included with firearms, right? right. And that was a legislative thing, you know, and the National Shooting Sports Foundation, they, you know, they... Um, give gun locks for free to people, you know, for use that wasn't legislative. Right. So, but it was legislative that required the locks to be included with guns. So I would like to think that firearm industry people would come on board with it and say, Hey, in case you are getting this because you're thinking about suicide, or if you ever think about suicide, like here's the information that you need to have. And I think that's, what's so important about, like your flyers and your information and the, uh, what is it? The quick mental health questionnaire, right. That, that you have out there, uh, available for the public. I think that's a great tool. And, um, at minimum, it opens up a dialogue. And I think the firearm manufacturers, they should be having that dialogue because, Hey, they're part of, they're, they're a cog on the wheel. No matter what size cog, they are a cog. Yeah. I I, I just want to make sure I'm not so close to it that I go, how could anybody say no? And there's legitimate reasons to say no. And one of them, sure, yeah, there's irrational suspicion and all that stuff. There's concerns about third-party liability if you're acknowledging it. It's like if you're acknowledging it but not actually solving it, then you could be on the hook or whatever. Um, but the flip side of that coin is like you're, you're going to be compelled to do it anyway. At some point or another, wouldn't it be great if you just said voluntarily, hey, look what, here, look at our effort. Um, now leave us alone you know, for, you know, for all intent and purpose. Um, so hearing that, it, you know, it's validating knowing that, that, you know, not everybody may be on board. Mike, one of the things maybe we do, because I just realized we're not, we don't have the screening on the flyer. I don't think we say check for, you know, hold on to this and we put the number down, but I'm wondering. Well, we, have a, we have the screening on there. I mean, we it? have okay. the direct link to the, actually it does. It's not even the website. It's the direct link. It's the, the same one. On the slash love. Yeah. Love, yeah. Um, and then, you know, that's why I, I, I was on the phone with the manufacturer the other day and we were kind of discussing this. Um, and they were like, yeah, we, we'd be interested in putting that in our product. And, um, you know, one of the points I made is I was like, look, you know, wh- who knows what happens when someone gets this card, they may save it. They may give it to a friend. They, they may go, Oh, wow. I didn't even really know that uh, these screenings existed. I've had many people say that they didn't know mental health screenings existed, that you, they thought they had to go to somebody to be evaluated, right? Um, you know, you find that sometimes people won't Google something, especially if they're in crisis, right? Or they're, they're feeling down. Sometimes you feel hopeless or you're just like, I have nowhere to go, especially gun owners, right? Because we're super sketchy of even the question, like, do you own a gun? Like, that's a right. very personal question. Like, it's almost like asking so- about someone's sexuality or something like that. Somebody that keeps, they keep it private, right? Um, but, you know, back to back to this this organization that's going to do this. 
I said, if I could just get people to, you know, when they buy a gun to see mental health and, and just look at it, I, that's a win for me because for so, so many years, and we still see this today in a lot of comment sections, they see mental health and they see firearms and they're just like, what, <laughs> you know, uh, thinking that it, it can't be ours. I am just so done with our people thinking that we can't be socially conscious and address these issues. We don't have to come off of our stance about. Right. right. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like, like I don't agree with these. I don't flag care about laws. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Yeah. But you can care about these things. Absolutely. Uh, and, and like I said, you know, like to me in a perfect world, the, the spotlight would be just on the, why do people want to take their lives? Because that's the issue, but we, we are in a perfect world. So, um, you know, it's, it's what we have to deal with. And I think you also had another anecdotal evidence of, of a manufacturer. And I don't want to dox any one manufacturer over another, but it was a gun storage solution and them saying, what, no, we're not interested in giving your literature out with our gun storage solutions. And, you know, like that kind of mentality and what were the optics that they gave you on that? Right. So, um, Again, to me, it's something that's probably rooted in, in an ignorance or trying to create a severability where we can separate ourselves from X, Y, Z thing, right? Yeah, it's uh, that, that I know what you're talking about. That was super disappointing. Um, I, I, you know, I, in, in one sense, too, I do understand that probably a lot of organizations are like, oh, boy, here he comes. Like, <laughs> what is he going to hit us up for? What does he want? And most of the time, people don't need to understand, especially those that are in manufacturing of any type of product. Um, if you say, hey, I don't have any money for you. I don't have any of this, but I'll put the card in the box. That's 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 a, that's a lot to me. That's huge, right? Because I need the the organizations and the, and the companies to stand next to me, especially when we go into these places where maybe we're not too welcome, right? Uh, I need to say, like, look, we're a united front. We care about this. Uh, we might care about it more than you do because <laughs> that's, you know, what I found is a lot of right. people criticize us and then you say, well, what do you do? And then they don't. And I'm like, oh, we put these in boxes and we, we link up mental health professionals, you know, gun culture, one one cultural competence. Um, there's so many different things that we do that I think are positive in the community. Um, I, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I didn't stop going to the ammo land comment section because I had my feelings hurt. I went there because I was like, I don't want to start telling people to F off. And then <laughs> right. totally, yeah. like I would start looking for fights. Right. And that's, that's kind of the chip on my shoulder, the mentality that I take with this organization when I'm out there talking to people that don't know us and don't have never taken the time to learn anything about the firearms industry, you know? Right. That's hard too. I, I remember just uh, a couple of few months ago, you were like, I need to be more presidential. I'm the president of a company. I need to be presidential. <laughs> and and it is hard because you, you have to balance the passion for what you're doing with the, um, the ability to not run over people with your approach, right? And trigger defensiveness and fight or flight. And, and I run into the same problem with some of the idiocy that I see in my own profession, uh, the, the stigma that we create as professionals by acting weird about everything and thinking that we're like <laughs> super special. And, and it's like, yeah, you wonder why people don't come seek care. It's that right there. And so I get all passionate and frothy about it. And, you know, some of the feedback is like, Hey, you could, you could pull it back just a bit. Like, 
I don't know that I need to. <laughs> like, I think somebody <laughs> needs to be fired up about this because nobody else is. Right. <laughs> now, um, and I think, I think the resources that you're putting out there are great. I wish that I could walk into any firearms retailer and see your flyers on the counter, you know, in a very similar fashion to the, the promo video with, uh, you know, Pincus that did the, you know, here's your flyer and I want you to, you know, take a look at this and take it home with you and, um, and have a situation in a dynamic like that where it's a voluntary thing because the firearm retailer or manufacturer, whomever recognizes the value in this versus this, you know, the, the stigmata of it, you know, you know, the bad view that you can see it's being stigmatized. Right. So, um, I would like to see a world where people will see that, right? And appreciate that and not poo-poo away. And that's an issue. Like, so in states like New Jersey, and I know you're talking, you know, from the clinical standpoint, like there's almost a, almost a preconceived notion that most people in medical field, whatever medical field it is, it doesn't matter which, um, have a more of an anti-firearm leaning right and then you take a state like new jersey which is just hostile to firearms and firearms rights completely and you know i've had people that you know i know that were applying for firearms id cards or whatever and um answer the questions and whatnot to get their firearms id cards and then the the issuing authority turns around and says you need to get a letter from your mental health professional saying that you can have this firearm. And that is a true story. Like this happened in New Jersey. And I'm like, geez. And this guy had to go back to see his mental health um, professional that he saw when he was going through a divorce. I don't know how many years prior to looking to get a firearm to get a letter from them with them saying like, honestly, I don't even really remember you because yep. how many, how long ago it was. And like, so now when you mix these things and you're like, well, you know, the mental health thing and firearms, why do people, you know, say, oh, that's bad? Because things like this do occur. Um, and I'm not saying that's the rule or the exception to the rule, but that's something that did happen with, with a contact that I knew that I was guiding through the process to get a firearms ID card. Yeah, Jake, um, Jake the, in New Jersey, and I tell that you, we, this is like common knowledge. Like most people that are into firearms will, if you were to say like, Hey, I'm applying. Most of them will say, make sure when they ask the reason you put down, I want to go to the range and practice target sport shooting. Like, because if you say something like protection, home protection, that might be an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, John, I've, I've, I've had friends that have gotten into the same issue where they're just being honest and they have no, you know, ill and, and they're not even supposed to ask that question. That's the other thing, Michael. So like by New Jersey law, that's not a question that's supposed to be asked either. And so by law, so you have these jurisdictions that are making up rules as they go along. I had a student, she came to me, she says, I need to get firearms training because the, the chief of police or the issuing authority told me that I need training. I says, well, why do you need training? That is not the law. And she said, well, because of X, Y, Z thing in my mental health background, they told me that I needed a, uh, a firearms instructor to train me to say that I'm safe with a firearm. And I'm like, look, I will train you because you want to learn how to use a firearm. 
but I refuse to train you because a issuing authority is telling you that you need this when it is actually against the law in the state of New Jersey to do such a thing. I said, so you tell me what you want to do because I'll be happy to call the issuing authority and educate them on the statute. So you have issuing authorities, you have jurisdictions that also make up the rules as they go along. And you can't play games when it comes to the mental health thing. Like who is the issuing authority to make up the law and say that that's what has to happen. I mean, that's just egregious. Is that a, does that fall under a may issue versus shall issue? Well, when it comes so now you're talking about, so in New Jersey, you have your firearms ID card and your pistol purchasers permits, right? And those are essentially shall issue things where if you meet the um, statutory requirements and you're, you have a clean mental health background check come back you should be because you submit to a voluntary well it's not voluntary if they make you do it right so you submit to a mental health background check and if there's a flag on the play where you're statutorily not allowed to have a firearm you won't but if you're statutorily allowed to have a firearm they're supposed to be issued and yet you have a you know places playing games that's just for simple purchase and possession now if you want to get into carry a, fi- a firearm new jersey is a so-called may issue state but we're actually a no issue state you cannot like if me as a firearms instructor um, cannot get a permit to carry in the state of new jersey the firearm retailer that's up the street from me on the highway here who comes and opens up the doors to his gun store every day cannot get a firearms uh, carry permit because we don't meet the justifiable needs standards. So there's like 1,200 carry permits in the state of New Jersey that aren't related to work or security or former police. And those 1,200 people, I, I really want to see the statistics on the zip codes and the counties of where these people live because I want to see the socioeconomic uh, but that's going into the weeds, right? So, <laughs> not really. I mean, not yeah, really because you're not. talking rampant discrimination potentially and or cronyism and or political favors and buy-offs. I mean, that's not at all in the weeds. And that's something right. that people need to be aware of when they're <laughs> talking about this May issue. It's right. de facto discrimination, no matter what, because human beings are never objective unless we have objective rules by which we follow. So we're always going to be subjective. We're always going to discriminate some way or right. other. Uh, but it blows my mind that an owner of a firearms retail store would not be allowed to carry a firearm. So like that, that picture you just painted, like opening the store, opening the store, couple of hoods waiting for him, bop him over the head. And now you've got all these firearms stolen and, and rampant on the street because the government refused right. to let the guy protect what they didn't want out in the first place. It blows my mind. Jake, I have so many stories from Eagle about New Jersey doing goofy things, but John, you'll appreciate some of this. Like, right. I thought regular checks from the ATF, like I, I assume like everybody got those. I thought that was just the way of life. And I remember the first time, like I was talking to a few of my friends, like in arms corps and in different States, you know, a couple of manufacturers that were in Florida. I'm like, how many times does the ATF come and visit you in, in a year? And they were like once, twice. And I'm like, what? And, and, and of course they would always joke around. They're like, well, yeah, they got to check on you. You're from Jersey or Italian and you're in firearms. Like they got to check on you all the time. But it, right. it really was one of those things where it was like, they, they do check on us a lot and it was fine. We were always in compliance. And that was one of the things that I prided Eagle on is because every member of our team 
new to comply with the laws. Don't break them because they're going to crush us if we do. Um, but, you know, we had guns stolen off a UPS truck one time and uh, th- this rogue UPS driver stole, stole a shipment and went to Newark and was and I guess an informant of some sort said, hey, there's a there's two guys selling firearms outside of a right. truck uh, or, you know, of the trunk of their car. And and they got them. Right. And then they were bringing Eagle into the fold because it was ours. And we wanted to be able to, like, be there to press charges. And just and we got a letter one day saying it's been dropped. Now, clearly, these people probably snitched on somebody. Right. But we're like, what? No, right. no. Like they just stole a whole truck of guns. <laughs> like, right. Where's where's my ability to say I want to press charges in this equation? Right. Yeah. I mean, it was it was ridiculous, you know, and those are the things that I think about because I'm just like, wow, only in Jersey can you potentially get out of that, you know, like and and don't let's not kid ourselves. They they sold some of those guns. Right. The informant said there's people selling those guns. So some of those guns got out into the market. And then you look at someone like Shanine Allen, who, who, who did, uh, you know, obviously didn't know the law. Um, yeah. Was it a little boneheaded move? Yes, 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 yes. We get it. Like she didn't know. But then Jersey throws the book at her. And just right. orally destroys her life. The single mother, too. Right. And they don't even. <laughs> and it's something that's like and I give a lot of uh, a lot of. Um, recognition to her defense team because her defense team looked at this specifically on those facts uh, revolving around the the firearm and the intent and they didn't even get into the why was she pulled over in the first place and in that county and statistically who gets pulled over for what reason the defense team didn't even discuss that in their arguments which if they did, you're talking about a completely different civil rights violation. Mm-hmm. You know how I got roped into that whole thing? I felt horrible for Shadeen. I, she, we're friends. We became friends. She's, as a a, great, she's a great woman. Yeah, she was carrying a bursa. <laughs> right. She, she, yeah, and, and I got contacted by somebody one day and they said, what are your thoughts on this whole thing? She, was, she had one, one of your firearms um, and I was like, I got to get, I got to call this lady immediately and help. <laughs> so yep. I was at the NR, the, uh, the ANJRPC meeting when they, she was gifted the gift certificate for her replacement. Yeah. I gave I her was, a free gun. Yep, and yep. yeah, I, I, Every, actually, I helped her out financially too. We, we, we wanted to help with some of the, because people don't realize even when everything is dropped, it's not like a light switch that turns, you know, Radically on great. Yeah. Now everything's back to normal. She had lost her job. And um, right. one, of the, one of the cutest stories that I, because I, I was working with some of the lawyers and people that were helping her and representing her, they wanted to interview me and talk to me. And um, one of the stories of her lawyer was like, I would go see her and it was cute because she wouldn't let me, she would meet me in the street when I parked my car, where I parked my car. And then she would walk me wherever she was protecting her. Cause that's how bad her neighborhood was. Right. That can navigate through that world. But she was like, I don't want this person. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, uh, so Shanine was, was very into protecting human life period. Right. Her kids and everything like that. Just horrible story. But it's just one of those things where I compare it to the, the guys selling the, you know, selling the guns out of the trunk after they stole them from us, from the UPS truck. And, uh, and I look at Shanine and I'm like, wow, J- Jersey really, 
<laughs> one one side story of this is the NRA flew out to a gun show to interview my team about this this whole incident. And I was having a bad morning. It was a late night. And I went on camera and you can find this on YouTube. And I just started bombing on New Jersey. Right. <laughs> so I ended up calling my CFO after the interview. How did it go? I said, oh, I'm not sure we're going to be in Jersey much longer <laughs> because I was just like, what is crime in Newark and Trenton all of a sudden disappeared? They have to go after Shanine. We're turning right. people into, yeah. into felons. <laughs> <laughs> no. And that's, it's a super sad story. What happened to her. And um, that's the, that's the reality of what, you know, gun owners have to deal with in New Jersey and those traveling through New Jersey. And remember, Atlantic County is the same county that gave pretrial intervention to that to that football player that they have video footage of him beating his girlfriend. And he was able to get pretrial intervention, no issues. And then here's Shanine Allen coming in the same exact time, but it involved a firearm with no mal intent and there was no criminal intent whatsoever, a simple mistake. And they're throwing the book at her. Well, why is it okay for a domestic abuser that you actually have footage of? You have video footage of this, like that you can't say that that's not malintent. It was. Um, and that was the same, the Atlantic County prosecutor. Um, it's total garbage. Yeah, Jake, we had when, you know, when we got hit with, um, was it Hurricane Sandy? Right. It was Hurricane Sandy right. came up the coast and it just it got Jersey bad. Like where where I'm from, people were, you know, they were in canoes going down the street. But you had all these these other states where people just naturally gravitated towards Jersey to help. Um, I, we had people from North Carolina come up. We had all these first responders and people that were to help. And a lot of people didn't understand the firearm laws in Jersey. So they're coming to Jersey to help. But they're they have their gun in their truck or, you know, they think yeah. they, they can carry. And it just created a whole problem because people who actually, you know, were trying to do the right thing. were getting in trouble. And when we say it was serious trouble, it's no joke. You know, I used to make the joke all the time. You're better off gang banging and getting caught with a gun in Jersey than just literally being like, Hey, I'm a law-abiding citizen. I just want to protect myself and my family. I don't want any trouble from anybody. Right, and there was people that did get hung up during Hurricane Sandy that were part of the relief efforts that did get caught with firearms, and they they had a a, a very long journey. So, <laughs> it's uh, you talk about systemic issues. New Jersey is like systemic when it comes to anything firearm, like, and it's all administrative based or legislative based, however you want to look at it. The attitude is very hoblophobic, right? To, to use the word uh, hoblophobia and, you know, pair into that situations like I just brought up with the, you know, issuing authorities saying, well, we need your mental health professional to sign off on this because you had marriage counseling, you know, half a decade ago. It's crazy. Yeah. There's no, I mean, Jake will tell you right now, there's no, what does that mean? You know what I mean? Like that's, what you read my mind. That's exactly where I was going to go. My favorite word in counseling is intentionality, knowing why you do what you do. So let's, let's peel back. Why do these laws even exist? Why do the restrictions exist? Why are they on the books? Why is that chief of police overly restrictive with his interpretation of what, why, to what end? I don't know that anybody could tell you because that's a, that's a reasonable, rational 
conversation that comes from the frontal lobe. And you can't have that discussion if you're in limbic based out of fear or, or indoctrinated uh, belief system that you're just clinging to, because if you question it, then you don't know who you are. Um, so there is no intentionality. There's, you can't point to evidence that tells me New Jersey is any safer because of this. You can't. And then you, right. you fold in the discrimination factor of, you know, how much easier is it to beat up on somebody from out of state than to uh, convict your own? And you know, I'm reminded of like, you know, the, the prototypical dean of students in the high school who handles discipline. It's like, um, you know, straight A student walks in five minutes late <laughs> and gets suspended for three days, but ignores the race riots on the playground because that's just a little too hard to tackle. And, right. Well, it's goes. That's like a whole different conversation. Like a lot of these jurisdictions, the police chiefs, the sheriffs, they know who the bad actors are in the criminal world. They know who mm-hmm. the drug dealers are. They know where they live. They know who they are. And the fact of the matter is, you know, how many of these prosecutors really want to pull the trigger on doing what they're supposed to do when their families are going to be intimidated, beat right. up, murdered and yeah. whatever. So right. like the, the, that problem, that's a whole different other problem that we have. Right. Yeah. You know, all the little townships that have their own little police force that are literally you. So like, if you look at Jake, you know, you drive for Vegas and Reno, you just drive forever and you're still under Metro Las Vegas Metro, right? Like yeah. in Jersey, <laughs> it's like there's a little town of Mayberry. There's Avon by the sea. There's Asbury Park. Like it, right. and you, you literally cross these lines, and there to you it all looks like the same beach town. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like you're no, you're in another part right now. And they all have. I mean, everybody knows like down the shore. Hey, when you get into you know this certain area, these cops are pretty tough. You know, don't speed. Like, don't even go five miles over. Like we had, we all knew that, um, but a lot of people don't. And and that's, you know, the problem. Very weird. Well, uh, this has been a good podcast and I really enjoyed listening to John talk. Um, it's, it's reaffirming to know that there's other people out there who are espousing the same ideas and ideals uh, that are, that we're, you know, trying to just pull humanity together and stop being so divisive and, um, really help heal lives at the end of the day, you know, so whether it's through training or advocacy or authorship, uh, um, it, it's all, it's all rowing the same, same direction in the boat. So appreciate you coming on. It's, it's useful and it's helpful. And I, I can't wait to share this episode really. So I think we covered no, a lot I, of really good ground. And I really appreciate you guys having me, you know, come on and it, it's an honor to be with you and you have had such a great, list of guests. So I really do feel honored to be part of that list and, um, you know, pushing what walk the talk America does, I think is important and getting your message out there is important. And had my book, uh, come out, you know, later. And if I knew about you, we would be talking about having walk the talk America's information in, in the appendix and, you know, something like that. So, because your information, I feel, would be, uh, you know, valuable in, in, in a book like this. And when I do an edit, you know, we'll talk about that. We'll probably get you guys in there if I get my stuff together to, to, to make an edit to the book. Baby steps. Um, baby yeah, steps. Baby we will steps get there. There right. will be more books. There will be more progress. There will be more positive effects. Baby steps. Yeah. And Absolutely. What, you know, one last question before we let you go. Um, how do you tend to your mental health? 
that's a great question. <laughs> I know you ask all of your guests that. <laughs> um, so it's funny because you talk about creative outlets and things like that. R writing has always been, I say always, for the last 20, 20 plus years has been a very pivotal thing for me and, and actually expression and it's cathartic to write. So it's kind of interesting now that I'm writing now uh, for Amolan and I'm writing with purpose versus writing, I, I hate to say without purpose, uh, but writing more works that have data behind them versus creativity. So going way back, I used to journal quite a bit and that was very important to me with just keeping myself grounded. And that was an activity that I would do. And now it's funny that I'm, I'm writing and, it, you know, some of the act, some of the things that I am writing about actually now get me kind of spun up, but the actual process of writing is cathartic for me. And I think that does help me with tending to my mental health uh, for sure. And, and the other thing is too, is just unplugging. You know, I try to unplug from everything and just, have quality time, you know, not just time with the family or time with the wife, uh, but quality time. I want to follow up on that last point, if you don't mind. Do you get a sense of um, anxiety, urgency, regret, FOMO <laughs> uh, when you unplug? And are you worried about what you're potentially missing or, um, you know, conversations you're not having over text or anything like that? Because I, I do, and I'm asking selfishly. Right, right. No, I mean, I think it's like a Band-Aid. If you make the conscientious decision to just put the device down, whether it's for an hour or two hours or a day, because you're doing something that actually does have value to your life, right? We go back to the, you know, yeah. do these devices add value? It says, well, you know, I could use this to make money or I could use this for that or whatever. And so it's very easy to get quickly wrapped up in that. And I think once you just, you put the thing down and then you come back to, to 30 messages or whatever, you could see which ones were important and which ones weren't. And so many, most of the time aren't. Yeah, that's, that's good. That's useful. Thank you. I, I needed to hear that. I think, um, how do people reach you? Uh, the best way to, to, to find me is on my website and it's johnpetrolino.com. So if you go to www.johnpetrolino.com. And on that website, I have um, a web form where you can email me. And that's the best way to get in touch with me is via that web form. Um, you can also, uh, there's links to a lot of my articles there as well. So you can see thumbnails of that. There's information about the book. So if you're interested in the book, it's called Decoding Firearms. It's available uh, on Amazon. It's 266 pages in paperback. And it's also a, a Kindle copy. Uh, over 115 illustrations are in there as well. Um, so there's information about the book uh, there as well as reviews and other interviews. So I'll probably be linking this interview to, uh, to that webpage as well for people to, to get access to. And uh, yeah, the website is the, the, the best place to get a, get a hold of me. Awesome. Uh, one last question, and maybe we should start doing this with all our guests. Do you ever get any celebrity comparisons? <laughs> um, well, yes. And I have had that happen when I was living in Red Bank in particular, walking the streets of Red Bank, uh, once in a while, somebody would think I was somebody famous, but, uh, I'm not anybody, uh, 
famous from the film industry. And I usually uh, will explain that. And I used to have a ponytail as well uh, and very long hair. Um, so I had long hair. And so the, my options were to just sadly explain to them I'm not who they think I am, or I would just start signing autographs um, and who just did, pretend. Who did they think? If, there's people that thought that I was the filmmaker from Clerks. And, Clerk, right, uh, yeah. yeah. Kevin Smith. Rats, Kevin Smith. Yeah, right? I mean, he, he's. Um, you go to Red Bank, he's got a store there. <laughs> he <laughs> does. Yep, yep. He, he does have a store there, and uh, I've had that happen to me in public several times. <laughs> That's amazing. So I actually was thinking that you're a doppelganger for Dan Levitard. Oh, oh wow. Okay. <laughs> right? Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. All right. Well, okay. two for one. That was good. <laughs> well, I definitely appreciate the dialogue uh, overall. This was a great interview. J Jake and Michael, it's a total honor to be with you guys. And I, I definitely appreciate this opportunity. Good to yeah. have you, man. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks. On behalf of our uh, Walk to Talk America family and on behalf of Arms Corps, who is uh, one of our title sponsors, and on behalf of Zephyr Wellness, we wish you all great mental health and happiness. Take care.